Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives on topics of interest. Wabanaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. We are beginning a new series titled ICE. This series is dedicated to the Wabanaki people of Maine so that they can understand the history of the Wabanaki state relations and why we are where we are and why we are treated like second class citizens at every turn. The long range strategic state plan to deal with Indians that is outlined in the transcripts that we're going to talk about is still in effect today and Wabanaki people are still feeling the impact of this long range strategy of isolation, control and elimination, ICE. The 1942 transcripts reflect the dialogue between the Legislative Research Committee members and the witnesses they called before them to discuss the Indian problem. The solutions they were pursuing is why this series is called ICE. Isolation, Control, and Elimination. Our guest today is one of my co-authors uh, of the article, One Nation Under Fraud, a Remonstrance. Attorney Joseph Gauss, he is a legal researcher and writing specialist. In addition to his work in private practice, he has served as professor of legal research and writing and professor of business law in the Maine Community College system. Prior to practicing law, he worked as a legislative researcher for the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a legal writing teaching assistant at the University of Maine Law School and was an executive board editor of the Maine Law Review in which he published a critical analysis of the law court's interpretation of the Maine Indian Land Claims Act of 1980. Welcome to the show, Joe. Uh, did I miss anything? No, thank you so much for having me, Donna. Yeah. It's an honor to be here. Okay. Do you want to add anything? Or um, Nope, that that's pretty much sums it up. Okay. So we begin with some background, because I always like to provide background to any, any of my uh, shows, or, and especially in this case, since it's a series. Uh, <clears throat> so on December 7th, 1941, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. The following day, December 8th, 1941, the United States of America declared war on Japan. Every state in the United States prepared for war. Maine was no exception. Its legislature in collaboration with governor and council took immediate action in various areas. One of those actions was to create a special legislative committee <clears throat> this committee was formed to study governmental functions performed by state departments and to recommend emergency legislation to make state government administratively efficient and cost effective in time of war. Most of its recommendations were implemented. The Legislative Research Committee studied a list of important subjects from Emergency Municipal Finance Board uh, distressed towns 
to taxes and legislative expense. One of the top areas was Indian Affairs. The Legislative Research Committee wanted to understand completely the relationship between the state and the tribes. They wanted to cut expenses in any possible and uh, what way and wanted answers to why the state was paying anything at all to these Indians. So, uh, Joe, I'm going to turn it over to you. And we're going to talk about the, uh, uh, I'm just going to, I'll name the members of the committee. The, in the Senate, there was Robert Dow, who was chair, uh, Horace Hildreth, uh, Jean-Charles Boucher, and, and in the House, there was Payson, Libby, Poulin, and Pelletier. Uh, so I'll let you tell us a little bit about each of these guys. Thank you, Donna. Yeah, so um, after doing some research on these um, legislators, I just want to share a little bit of info on each, and I'll just kind of go down in no particular order just of the names. Um, so we have Senator Robert B. Dow, and Senator Dow at the time of the transcripts in 1942 was a 44-year-old attorney. Um, through his career, he was twice a representative for the main House of Representatives, and three times he served as senator. He also, um, being an attorney, was active in the main bar and was president of the main bar association at one point. Senator John Charles Boucher was a renowned, well-known contractor, building contractor. And at the time of the 1942 transcripts, he would have been a 47-year-old uh, senator for the state. He had served in his time in the main legislature as the dean of the legislature at one point. Um, and he had served as both a representative and a senator representing the Lewiston, town of Lewiston and the Androscoggin County um, citizens. Uh, former Governor Horace A. Hildreth, um, at the time of the 1942 transcript, was a 39-year-old Bowdoin College graduate and lawyer from Gardner, Maine. Uh, former Governor Hildreth, he served as governor twice, two terms. Um, he also had success as a broadcast executive in our state. He established the Hildreth Network of Maine, and amongst his other uh, career um, accolades and accomplishments. He served as a state representative um, in Maine and also an ambassador to Pakistan and was even president at Bucknell. Moving on to um, the representatives, we have Mr. Payson. Mr. Payson, W. Mayo Payson, was 50 years old in 1942. Uh, he was an attorney, a practicing attorney in the Portland area. He was a partner at a law firm. Later in life, he served as corporate counsel for the city of Portland. He was the executive secretary for Maine Medical Association towards the end of his life and career. During his uh, younger years, he was a five-time legislator for the state of Maine. So he served five terms. And uh, Mr. Payson's role is significant in the context of our discussion because he was one of the founding, kind of like the founding force behind the Legislative Research Committee. So he helped to found that body in the legislature. Next, we have Mr. Libby, Roy S. Libby. In 1942, Mr. Libby was 62 years old. He was a very prominent, well-known uh, member of the Caribou area, uh, citizen of Caribou. He was a farmer. I believe he was a potato farmer based on his involvement with Aristic County um, 
you know, financial committees and, and appearing in the main potato journal and things of that nature. So he was successful uh, in the, in an agrarian sense. Um, and also, of course, he served as a state representative. Uh, we have Mr. Roland J. Poulin, who in 1942 was 31 years old, a college, uh, graduate of Colby College. He served as a House uh, in the House of Representatives and later on went on to become a judge in the state of Maine. And uh, Judge Poulin served in the Northern and Southern Kennebec Divisions of the 7th District Court in both Waterville and Augusta. And uh, interspersing his career's paths, he also served in World War II. And then finally, we have uh, Mr. Lorenzo J. Pelletier. In 1942, uh, Mr. Pelletier was a 35-year-old member of the Maine House of Representatives. He uh, served as part of the Governor's Executive Council during his career. He also served on the Appropriations Committee and the Governor's Advisory Committee. Um, among his other accomplishments and involvement in the legislature, um, he was a member of the one of the initial members of the Legislative Research Committee. He uh, served on the State Liquor Commission and was also chairman of the City of Sanford Sewage District for 15 years. Okay. So that's the uh, the background to the the uh, members of the Research Committee. And uh, I guess, you know, we should, I should probably say something about the, uh, the transcripts because uh, uh, that's really the, the series. This is what the series is all about, is the transcripts. And uh, in, my, in my estimation, uh, I, was, I was doing research for a book um, and uh, I came across I came across uh, the transcripts sort of, I really wasn't looking for them because I didn't know that they even existed. And uh, I did know that the uh, Proctor report existed. I knew that Ralph Proctor wrote a report for the state legislature and uh, it was a very derogatory report. Um, I didn't know the genesis of that report until I asked the, uh, it, and, you know, in COVID sort of was the uh, catalyst for this. It's kind of funny uh, because otherwise I may not have found found the transcripts because I, you know, I, I asked the uh, archivist if I could get a digital copy of the Proctor report. And uh, they basically said, well, you know, it just depends on what you want. Tell me what you want. What section do you want? And uh, I said, um, I, I just want the entire report. Well, we're working on that, but we don't have it all done yet. So I thought, well, I'm going to get a hold of one of my clerks that I had worked with in the legislature. Because uh, I was a legis in the legislature for, I'm going to say, about 11, 12 years. So I contacted the clerk and and asked if he could help me get this digital copy. And he said, well, let me, let me try. So he got back to me and he said, sure, you can, you'll have it by the end of the week. So when I got the, uh, the digital transcript, the uh, person that sent that to me also said, there are papers around this transcript. Do you want them? 
And I said, absolutely. So when they sent me the uh, papers that were around the transcript, um, I'm sorry, around the, around the report, that then I saw the transcripts. And that's when I found out about the Legislative Research Committee in 1942 and what, uh, what they were studying, the fact that they were looking at Indians at that time because of you know expenses and they wanted to cut down expenses for state government because it was during the war. And they wanted to really look into the Indian situation or the Indian problem and, uh, and see exactly uh, what that involved and how they could cut down on on that situation. So that's, and, and then when, after reading these transcripts, there were, there's a transcript for uh, McDonald. Uh, uh, and then there's a transcript for Cowan, who's the attorney general. Well, McDonald was the director of, uh, I wanna say health and welfare, I think. Social welfare, yep. So, and then uh, see McDonald and then Frank Cowan, who was the attorney general and another transcript uh, by uh, Ralph, uh, Ralph Proctor. And then there's a separate report that he wrote that actually was given to the legislature. And then at the end of this is a legislative research committee recommendation of what they recommend after they've considered all everything the testimony and the research and everything. So the series that we're going to do, will look into these transcripts, what was said verbatim. And I'm gonna warn you that some of those things are shocking. Uh, I was kind of awestruck when I read them. I couldn't believe I was reading what I was reading. Um, and uh, I think we're probably gonna have some time here to, to uh, look at the at the uh, one first one maybe two or three pages of the transcript I'm not sure um, so um, Joe I'm going to ask you to read the uh, the first part of the page one the down to Indian situation sure see that I'm going to ask you to read that right from the part where it says State House Augusta. Yeah, let me just find the end point here. You're talking about on page one, Donna, where it ends? Or? Yeah, the, uh, well, I mean, you can start by the, the, the cover even. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so this took place, the Legislative Research Committee met over a period of days, July 27 through 29 of 1942. And as you said, Donna, the testimony of Norman W. McDonald, Director of Social Welfare for the State of Maine, um, was, was called upon to speak. And the title on the page, uh, it just says, the ray line is Indians. Um, so this was occurring at the State House in Augusta on July 28th, 1942 at 2 p.m. Um, and I'm just going to read uh, as, as follows. It begins with uh, Mr. Weber who I don't know if we've introduced him. Do you want me to take a few seconds just to... Why don't you do that? Sure. Okay, thanks. Yeah, so Donald Weber is the special counsel uh, for the Legislative Research Committee as it pertains to uh, the Proctor Report and this investigation into what they're just calling Indians. Um, at the time, 
Donald Weber was a 36-year-old Harvard Law-educated attorney. Um, he would go on later to serve in the Navy in World War II. Uh, but really, what he is remembered for is having served as an associate justice on the Maine Supreme Judicial Court. So for those listening, um, that is Maine's highest court. Um, sometimes it's referred to as the law court. Um, but again, that's like the Supreme Court, uh, the main version of the Supreme Court. So this is a, a very prominent um, jurist in Maine history. So uh, I'm going to begin with Mr. Weber, who at the time was 36 years old, and, and he's a special counselor. And here's what he has to say. And Donna, just stop me when I get to the point that, that you're okay with. He says, there was referred to this committee, Senate Paper 395, legislative document 694, entitled an act relating to the loss of membership in Indian tribes by marriage. And in considering what the committee might do with this bill, it seemed that it was too bad to spend very much time just on this one problem, unless we might be considering at the same time some of the broader aspects of the whole Indian situation in Maine. So I suggest that we divide this discussion into two parts, and that first we get your opinions as to the merits of the particular bill and practical problems that might be presented if this bill or some amended form of it should be adopted. And then there is the other part of the discussion, general discussion with you as to any larger problems of the Indian situation. Okay, that's good. So let's talk about this bill that uh, they've, they've taken to sort of, uh, as an example, they've, they've pulled this bill because it will help them address the Indian situation in general. So do you have a copy of that bill? Uh, yes, Can you I do. Read us what that bill says. Yeah, itself? of course. So this is the uh, 90th legislature and this is legislative document number 694 for anybody who wants to access this in the archives. Um, and it reads, State of Maine in the year of our Lord, 1941, an act relating to the loss of membership in Indian tribes by marriage. And the text of the act says, be it enacted by the people of the state of Maine as follows. Public law 1933C1, section 256 amended. Section 256 of chapter one of the public laws of 1933 is hereby amended by adding at the end thereof a new paragraph to read as follows. Quote, if any woman who is a member of the tribe marries a man who is neither a member of the tribe nor eligible for membership therein, she shall forfeit her membership in the tribe and shall not be eligible for adoption into the tribe during the period of such marriage. All provisions of this section shall apply to the Passamaquoddy tribe of Indians, as well as to the Penobscot tribe, and such pers persons shall be subject to removal from the tribal reservations as provided in sections 261 and 291 of this chapter, end quote. So if this bill passed the way that it was written, uh, it would, it, it would in effect uh, take away the membership of an Indian woman who married a non-Indian man. Yes. So if in fact the woman loses her membership, any children she has would also lose their membership. 
Yes. And she would also lose whatever property or anything else that, that she had. So that would be the effect of this bill. Uh, so when they looked at, at the bill, it is my feeling, my, my opinion, that they saw this as a bridge to actually solving some of their problems as far as tribal membership goes, to keeping the tribal, uh, tribal uh, membership small and maybe eventually uh, having it disappear. So uh, go ahead and so what, what are your thoughts on, the, on this, Joe? Yeah, I agree with you, Donna. My my personal view of this is exactly what you just said. And I think without getting ahead of ourselves, I think listeners will hear as the program goes through the transcripts that the legislators and the members of the committee actually say as much. They, they basically come right out and confirm um, what is clear through inference. So that's, that's what I'll say for now. Um, would you like me to continue with Mr. Weber? Yes. Continue. Okay. okay. All right, so we're picking back up uh, from Mr. Weber's testimony here. Quote, now I am having a record made, not because I want to bother you men in any way, shape or manner, but simply because in considering so many different problems, none of us can retain this stuff in our minds. And if anything occurs to you during the course of the discussion that you prefer to discuss off the record, do not hesitate to say so, because we do not intend to confine you to the record at all. And then Mr. Weber says, now, Mr. McDonald, you and I have discussed this briefly, and I suggest that you tell the committee what you have learned about the background of this bill, meaning 694 that we just read, and what you think of it from a departmental point of view. And again, that's in reference to McDonald's role as director of social welfare. Right. And I, I do want to add right here that it's really a service to us that they recorded this because we would never know what conversation took place in 1942, reference the strategy that they were gonna follow uh, towards the Indians. Yes, I agree. And I think it's remarkable, um, you know, especially with looking in hindsight, applying today's view of things to look at exactly what was said. Uh, I agree with you, Donna, it's, it's a shocking transcript. Okay, so. Joe, I'll let you continue as Mr. McDonald. Sure. So Mr. McDonald, um, who at the time, I don't know if we gave his age, I just want to give a, a little bit of background here. Um, in 1942, Director McDonald was 46 years old. Um, I think, you know, he served as Director of Social Welfare for 15 years and thereafter went on to be City Manager for the City of Presque Isle. So I just wanted to mention that as well. Um, so here's Mr. McDonald, Director of Social Welfare. He says, quote, the background in regard to this bill is an attempt backed up by the Indians in general to try to limit membership in the tribes. At the time the bill was presented, I know that no thought had been given to the fact that the Penobscot laws do not provide for a limited ownership of property on the Penobscot reservation. That is, Indians who are members of the Penobscot tribe are granted by statute the right to limited title to property on the Penobscot Reservation with the provision that these properties cannot be sold to any person who is not a member of the tribe or be transferred in any way to a person who is not a member of the tribe. Okay, right, back up. Um, yep. 
first question, uh, the first sentence, I think, at the time the bill was presented, I know that no thought had been given to the fact that the Penobscot laws do provide. Do provide. Do provide for a limited ownership of property. Yes. Uh, okay. So, and then, um, then they talk about, uh, so from you're just reading that piece about limited ownership of property. They're also, they're just not thinking about getting rid of a, a member. They're also thinking of the property that's involved with that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's at the forefront of McDonald's mind when he's asked about this bill. Yep. Okay. Keep going. Sure. Okay. When the bill came up for hearing, that point was raised. And while it was given considerable attention, no good solution could be found to that objection. And I'm not sure we have any good solution of it yet. In looking through the statutes, I did find that section 256 of chapter one of the public laws of 1933, which pertains to the Penobscot tribe, does provide, quote, and this is, again, what, what you know, what 694 was changing, quote, membership deemed lost when tribe is abandoned. If any member of said tribe shall abandon it and join another tribe of Indians, he shall be deemed to have lost his membership in the Penobscot tribe and shall not be entitled to any rentals or other money thereafter apportioned among members of said tribe, nor to any other subsequent rights of membership. McDonald continues, quote, I think that in considering this bill, it was felt that a precedent perhaps for taking away rights of membership from a person who abandoned the tribe and an Indian woman in marrying a white man was in fact abandoning the tribe, and therefore this was not out of line with what was provided in the statutes. On the other hand, it would affect probably certain women on the reservation who did have property and who shouldn't have to just give up their property because of marriage. And then keep keep going, Donna, with Mr. Weber. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay, Mr. Weber says, as I understand it, the state retains the fee in land and buildings and the Indians get by statute some sort of qualified ownership, which gives them the right to sell and demand the purchase price and transfer. But at all times, the underlying fee is in the state of Maine. McDonald says, that is right. The law says this property may be transferred during the pleasure of the legislature or the title may be given during the pleasure of the legislature and it goes further as i've said before to limit transfer to other members of the tribe so that while they have this title and it is registered nevertheless they do not have full control of this property all right um so what do you what are your thoughts on that little that piece right there yeah, so, so to me, when I read this, I see the committee members trying to, um, they're basically looking at what the laws on the books are. So they're looking at, you know, section 256, chapter one of the 1933 laws, and they're saying, you know, is there a parallel between this 694, which is limiting tribal membership based on marriage, and is that consistent with pre-existing, you know, quote, laws that the tribes would have regarding property holdings. So to me, just to kind of sum it up, it, it seems like these folks are struggling to understand that they're not equipped with the tools to 
begin to address their questions because these are, are separate issues and they don't seem to quite understand that. Yeah, and the other thing, they keep referring to the laws that are on the books. And I <clears throat> I remember, I don't know, <clears throat> excuse me, when the when the blue book laws were enacted, but the blue book laws are what we refer to uh, our laws that Maine uh, created to uh, control the tribes in just about every aspect of their lives. Uh, so maybe they're ref referring to that, the, the blue book laws, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so where are you here at? Uh... So, yep, I'm going to keep going and just stop me when, when we should sure. pause and discuss. So Chairman Dow responding to Director McDonald says, where is it recorded? Uh, meaning the laws pertaining to um, tribal property rights. Mr. McDonald's response, in the registry of deeds and with the Indian agent. To this, Mr. W. Mayo Payson says, is it the retroactive features of this law that bother? Mr. McDonald, no, I do not think it was the retroactive features because we realized we could put in a provision so that it would not be retroactive. But there are certain members of reservations who inherit property and do not want to be deprived of their property right through marriage, which really boils down to a question in my mind of how far we are going in this question of Indians in limiting membership in the tribe. Are we going to try to limit membership in the tribe to persons who are actual Indians, or are we going to go ahead with our present laws, which could result in the end in having no full-blooded Indians or half-blooded Indians even. Mr. Payson, may I go back to the fundamental proposition, if I may? I may have missed it. What is the situation with relation to these tribes? Are they practically people on the state payroll, state-supported and state-sponsored? Mr. McDonald, so far as I can find out, there was a treaty made between the Massachusetts, between Massachusetts and these two tribes, and when we became a state, we made a treaty with the Indians. Mr. Payson, what did the treaty provide? Mr. McDonald, the treaty provided they would have these reservations and we would pay them so many hogsheads of molasses, so many blankets. In fact, I have got the treaty right here. Mr. Payson, what does that translate into money today? Mr. McDonald, between two and $3,000 a year. Mr. Payson, I don't mean what the treaty provided for, but what is the actual situation? Mr. McDonald, the actual situation is we are spending practically $48,000 on our appropriation for the Penobscot tribe, 48,000 for last year and this year. Mr. Payson, what do they do to support themselves? Mr. McDonald, they do various things. Some of them work in the mill in Old Town. They do make some baskets. There has not been much market for Indian baskets during the past two years. They do some guiding, perhaps more so among the Passamaquoddy than the Penobscots. That is about all they do. Chairman Dow, are there any of them self-supporting? Mr. McDonald, a few. Chairman Dow, 100%? Mr. McDonald, a few. Mr. Payson, but actually they are an independent people? Mr. McDonald, 
Yes. And we have encouraged them to be an independent people. When I say we, I am not thinking of the department. I am thinking of the people of the state of Maine. I've seen that brought in many Indian legislative committees where there has been the feeling that we have taken all the lands that belong to the Indians in the state of Maine that belonged to them at one time and we owe the Indians a lot and are very much indebted to them and cannot do enough for them. I think you will find that is a reasonably prevalent opinion. Mr. Boucher, you hear we owe them a million dollars. Let's let's stop right there. So the discussion so in this transcript here goes from uh, land, uh, from ownership, uh, you know, possibly losing property uh, through marriage, uh, into, you know, how, how much money do we owe them? You know, into the money question, and uh, so it goes from property to money, which is basically, I think, what they really wanted to find out to begin with uh, was the money issue. But I think they wanted to figure out how they're going to use this bill uh, to, to affect, uh, what they really want. So they're sort of like dancing around that question right now. Yes. And I would just add to that, Donna, I mean, if you're looking and I would encourage people to, to go find the document and look at it, it's the actual document online. Um, it's, it's in the span of really four pages. You have an introduction and then in the span of four pages, you go from a conversation about the propriety or practicability of marriage and property laws into an elected representative asking, don't we owe them a million dollars? Okay. Um, so to Mr. Boucher's question uh, or statement rather, Mr. McDonald, that is true. Mr. Payson, is there any basis for that? Mr. McDonald, no more than the whole country belonged to the Indians at one time, Mr. Payson. But we have a treaty relationship with them, which does not call for any such expenditure as that, Mr. McDonald. Yes. On the other hand, they are a group of people within the state of Maine. And under our pauper laws, or whatever laws you want, they are entitled to relief if they need it. We have set up reservations and specific laws governing the Indians and have set up provisions in here, they shall be provided for. You have got the treaty on the one hand and your laws on the other. Actually, the treaty is not being carried out, in fact, and the, at the present time, the treaty is not being carried out, in fact, at the present time, because we are not giving them the things that the treaty called for. In place of that, we are giving them this assistance, giving them all the things that the law has provided for since the treaty was made. Mr. Payson. 10 times as much? Mr. McDonald, 10 times as much. That is perfectly true. Mr. Payson, and what this bill is aimed at is to prevent the extension of this, I will call it pauper support, to people who are not Indians at all? Mr. McDonald, that is pretty much what it is. It is to prevent people, it is to prevent the spreading the tribe by getting more white people into the tribe. It's a bit of an awkward phrase, but I, I'll read it again. Mr. McDonald's response is, that is pretty much what it is. It is to prevent the spreading the tribe by getting more white people into the tribe. Mr. Dow, 
Have you studied that treaty pretty carefully? I am not trying to put you on the spot, but are you pretty familiar with it? Mr. McDonald, yes, I have a copy here. Mr. Dow, is there any mention made in the treaty about land rights, loss of land as a basis? Do they agree to give us the rest of Maine if we will give them some reservations? Mr. McDonald, there is nothing like that in there. I do not think they laid claim to the whole of Maine at that time. Mr. Weber, well, as I recall it, the bonds of land that were acquired were reasonably definitely described by the treaties, as distinctly as they described land in those days. And then the obligations were set forth, and we, for the most part, took over and assumed the original Massachusetts obligations. Mr. McDonald, that is right. And then shortly after we became a state, I think it was eight, in 1833, we purchased from the Penobscot tribe four townships. In other words, their original reservations consisted not only of islands in the Penobscot River, but four townships of land. I do not know what price we paid for the land, but we purchased four townships in 1833 and made the provision that the interest from that money could be allocated by the governor and council for use of the Indians. Mr. Dow. Did a deed actually pass signed by the people in charge at that time? Mr. McDonald, I understand so from all the records I can find. Mr. Weber. Stop right there. The, the, uh, it's very interesting to me that in 1942, they're talking about the four townships. And uh, so... To me, I mean, that's historically, that's where Maine actually, after they uh, sold the four townships, or, or, or I should say, stole the four townships, <laughs> uh, you know, that's basically when they started started uh, taking over guardianship uh, and, and uh, really implementing their laws, reference the tribes. That's when their complete takeover began. Uh, when they when they took that uh, those four townships, uh, and it's I find it interesting that that they're pretty much talking about it in 1942, uh, and these are just these are just elected officials. Uh, they're not historians, so they're you know. Yeah, I I yeah. think that's a, a a smart perspective, Donna. I mean, really here. We have folks who, as you go through the transcript, by their own admission, um, are, are quite lost. Um, I think by the end of, of this transcript, one of the representatives kind of, you know, in, in a matter of words, throws his hands up and says, well, what do we actually know? We don't know anything. Um, but the one thing that they do know in, in 1942 at the outset, um, again, with specificity, is that there was this narrative of the four townships being, quote, purchased by the state of Maine. So I agree that that's, that's definitely something that's endured past specialized knowledge. It's something that a lot of people were aware of, that history. Okay, so keep going here. Okay, let's see. So we have Mr. Weber. Has the department any definite position, having in mind your department problems for or against this bill? Mr. McDonald, well, 
we are in favor of the bill, provided we can work out some scheme whereby we are not going to hurt the rights of the individuals who are involved. I do not think it is fair for us to just arbitrarily legislate a person out of their property without some compensation of some kind for it. Mr. Weber, that is insofar as the bill prevents the addition of further white blood into the picture. The department favors it? Mr. McDonald, yes. Mr. Weber, and a substantial number of Indians also favor it? Mr. McDonald, yes. Mr. Weber, insofar as it might have the effect of destroying these property rights such as they are, the department is opposed to the bill unless some amendment or something covers that and a certain number of Indians would also be opposed to it on that ground? Mr. McDonald, that is right. Mr. Dow, would the opposition by the Indians be practically removed if the property situation were cleared up? Mr. McDonald, yes. Mr. Cummings, and Donna, this is Flag Cummings, who I don't believe we've introduced, but yep. I think just briefly, he was, a, he was an Indian agent at the time, 1942? Yes. Yep. Okay. So Flag Cummings says, um, yes, when the bill came out last winter, the Penobscots were opposing it until they found out more about it. Mr. Dow, you think if that principal objection was cleared up, it would clear up the major objection to the bill by the Indians? Mr. McDonald, that is right. Mr. Weber, now, Mr. McDonald, since the conversation you and I had in which we analyzed this problem about this same way, have you given any thought to any possible amendment that might clarify the situation? Mr. McDonald, yes, I have given considerable thought to it, but I cannot say I have arrived at any conclusion that did not seem to have holes in it. I wondered if it were not somewhat of a legal matter that would require an attorney to work on it. I mean, we could tell that what we thought should be accomplished, but I haven't found any fully satisfactory way to meet this particular problem. Mr. Payson, can we find out what you think should be accomplished by the amendment? Mr. McDonald, if we can work out some plan whereby they can either retain their property rights for a limited length of time, say 10 years, in order to give them a chance to sell it to some other Indian or get rid of it in some way, or if we could work out some plan whereby the state could reimburse them on a satisfactory basis for the value of their property. One of the difficulties you run into there is that the property is not taxed, therefore it is not evaluated. There is no valuation of property and no way to determine what the value of the property is. Mr. Payson, suppose you retain their rights during the lifetime of persons now holding property there. Mr. McDonald, that is a possibility. You could do it during their lifetime and take away their right to sell it except to a member of the tribe. Mr. Payson, and take away the right that anyone who inherits it or acquires it by will to do anything except keep it within the bounds of that amendment there? Mr. McDonald, that is right. One difficulty you could run into there would be this. Supposing there was a woman who had a nice choice piece of property on the reservation, a nice house, and she marries a white man and moves off the reservation. And it may be that property will be quite essential for some purpose, or it should be used for other members of the tribe, and she might not be willing, through prejudice or something else, to permit the property to be used. And it might even become a fire hazard. 
I don't know as we would have any control of the property as long as it was in her possession, although she might be living in California. Mr. Weber. Mr. McDonald, I think there was another thought you mentioned to me, as I recall it, and that is take the same instance you have imagined. The ability of the Indians themselves to purchase is so limited that she might be absolutely unable to obtain a fair price for it from any other Indian who was qualified under the statute to buy it. In what thinking I have done on it since you and I discussed it, I have been unable to see any solution except to have the state immediately purchase the qualified property right for a fair price to be determined on by some mechanics. As, for example, just reaching into the air now, we will say the price to be determined by the governor and council upon recommendation of the Indian agent and the tax assessor. I am not recommending that, but some such mechanics might be applied and immediately take it over. Mr. McDonald, that seems to be the only feasible way to handle it. Mr. Payson, what becomes of your situation then? You gradually pick up all the ownership of Indian property and still have to support them. Mr. McDonald. Yes, I am not bringing this up as a means of solving the problem of supporting the Indians. Mr. Payson, I was just wondering, by this means you would repurchase, might conceivably repurchase, every bit of land there, and still the ownership of land in, in, in the Indians is the basis on which the legislature says we have to support them. Mr. Boucher, the answer to that is if you do that, they are going off the reservation. And if they are off the reservation, who has got to take care of them? Mr. McDonald, not out of the Indian fund anyway. Mr. Payson, I'm a little bit afraid you might buy the land and pay the money and still have to support them. Chairman Dow, you might have to support them in Lewiston for some other fund, from some other fund, but it comes out of taxpayers' pockets. Mr. McDonald. I do not think you can determine this around the basis of whether it is going to eliminate the support of the Indians or not. That is an entirely different problem and a much larger problem. I do not think it is a problem we are going to settle here today. Chairman Dow, if the law read that anyone who acquires property after the effective date of the act forfeits their rights, would that help out or is it too big? Supposing the law said that on or after the effective date, this act of this act, any member of the tribe who marries a white man forfeits their rights. Mr. McDonald, that is what the bill provides. You might say, Chairman Dow, a person who acquires property after the effective date of the act. Mr. McDonald, most of this property is acquired by inheritance, not by purchase. Chairman Dow, regardless of how they acquire it, if they marry outside of the tribe. Mr. McDonald, they at least know it in advance. Mr. Boucher, there is another thing I want to point out. Mayo referenced, referred to them as paupers. They strenuously object to being called paupers. They are state wards. If you get up against them, you will know that. Mr. Payson, I very carefully prefaced that by saying, for the purpose of this committee. Mr. Dow, would that solve the problem at all? Mr. McDonald. I think that would certainly help and eventually accomplish just what this bill would accomplish immediately, but I do not know that it would be acceptable to the Indians. Uh, Mr. Hildreth, just to defer a minute, why is it 
that limited why is that limited to a female who marries out why not males and females mr mcdonald it rather follows the settlement law the wife takes the stat the status of her husband we have that throughout all our relief problems in the state of maine mr hildreth then by leaving that open it does not let the husband come in to get little to get title to that property mr mcdonald no they cannot get title it will accomplish the same thing in the end. Chairman Dow. It would not be quite so brutal to use that word. They know then if they marry out of the tribe, it is just too bad. And they have lost their property. Mr. Boucher. Or they could dispose of it before they marry. Chairman Dow. It would be longer closing the gate, but it would shut it eventually. Mr. McDonald. I think it brings up the whole big problem of what we want to do to limit the membership in tribes of Indians. At the present time, so far as I can see, they may, they may be a member of the tribe and have very little Indian blood in them because the law says membership may be acquired by birth and adoption into the tribe. That is limited. They cannot adopt anyone who is not at least one quarter Indian blood. And the third is by marriage to a male member of said tribe, provided they have any Indian blood in them themselves. It seems to me we might want to limit that third part. A woman could not become a member of the tribe by marriage unless she had one quarter of Indian blood. And I think that first one could be limited because, quote, by birth, it means if a member of the tribe, man or woman, has children, these children become members of the tribe. For instance, we had a case where a member of the tribe, a girl who is perhaps half Indian blood, and she has an illegitimate child by a white man. That child, so far as I know, is automatically a member of that tribe, and that child could grow up and have illegitimate children, and they could be members of that tribe. Chairman Dow, which is the greater trend, white men marrying squaws or vice versa? Mr. Cummings, white men marrying squaws. At Pleasant Point, we have the case of a white man from Marblehead, Massachusetts, who married an Indian girl, and they have now 11 children, and she is 36 years old. There is quite a feeling among the Indians because this fellow is quite ugly and inclined to be bossy, and he lives on the reservation, and the state supports his family. Mr. MacDonald, of course, they are not very high-class white men that marry in there. Mr. Payson, Mr. MacDonald, may I go deeper than this? talking in words of four syllables, taking it as a sociological proposition. How about segregating these people and keeping them intact as a separate people? Is that the policy of the state? Mr. MacDonald, no. I think it is physically impossible to do it that way because under federal Indian laws, because the, under the federal laws, those people are citizens of the United States. They are American citizens if they are born in this state and while our constitution does not seem to permit them to vote, so far as I can see, there is nothing to prevent them from voting under federal law because there is a federal law that says any Indian is a citizen of the United States. Okay, you know, it seems, like, it seems like they have gone all over the place on this. All story, over. Trying to figure out. Uh, they, they don't even know what they're, what they're doing now. It sounds very uh, chaotic. Yes. Uh, so they went from land to marriage to membership 
um, you know, just to try to figure out how are we going to uh, eventually, how are we going to eliminate these people? That's how I read it as well, Donna. I mean, I take it, the, the words, the plain language for what they are. And essentially, you have a bill, which seems to be the foundation for the conversation. And from that, they've departed into a constitutional analysis of citizenship and voting rights. And uh, we're pretty far afield from where we started. Right. So, Mr. Payson, that's where you're at now. Okay, yes. Um, so we have Mr. Payson. What do we do in the way of training or education? Mr. McDonald. That is a relic that has come down. The Indians were early converted to Catholicism, and they are practically all Catholics, and there are parochial schools on each of the reservations. Mr. Payson. Maintained by the church? Mr. McDonald. Maintained by the state. The state maintains the schools and pays the teachers and pays the priests. On the other hand, the Indians have the right to go to public schools outside the reservation if they want to, and they have the right to go to high schools outside the reservation, and we pay their tuition to high schools. Mr. Payson, do they receive training such that they are able to go out and earn a living afterward? Mr. McDonald, I think so. They have the same opportunities for education that others do. They go to the Eastport High School and the Old Town, Old Town High School. We also give them free tuition at the University of Maine if they want to go up there. So the members of the Old Town tribe are in an ideal position to get a college education if they want it, because the Board of Trustees has always given free tuition to the Indians, and we have, if necessary, provided their uh, car fare from Old Town to Orno. Mr. Payson, isn't the thing that really holds this nucleus together this underlying security they have from the state? Mr. McDonald, that is true. Chairman Dow. And the white blood is a little more anxious to obtain that living without working than the native is? Mr. McDonald, that is right. I think myself, it is a serious problem and a rather difficult problem too. Chairman Dow, we might as well be honest about it. It aggravates the problem. And then they go off record. Well, you know, is and when, when uh, Weber at the beginning said, we're gonna put this on record, he said, don't worry about it because we can always go off record if you, what you say you don't want to discuss on the record. So you wonder after these conversations of, you know, trying to figure out how to cut down membership, all kinds of different ways of doing it. What are they talking about now? And what are they going to say when they come back? So. Right. And I think yeah. So Mr. McDonald coming back on the record, he says, I think if we could only get some law to prohibit white men living on the reservation, if they married a squaw, they've got to leave there. Mr. Boucher responds, if a white man has a squaw, get them off the reservation and keep them off for the rest of their life and the children can't go back. Mr. Cummings, from now on, that would not bother those now there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then it goes down to the to the children and you know. So if you cut down the children, you cut down the membership. Exactly. Yeah. So it, essentially, you know, we started um, with the analysis of like the legal the laws pertaining to family and marriage, 
And somehow we ended up in a constitutional analysis. We're talking about treaty law. And now we're back, as you can see, without having gained any better understanding, the legislators are back to this question of the family. And it seems that they don't know exactly what their imperative here is. They don't know exactly what they think they need to do, but they do have an understanding that uh, going after the cohesive family unit is one way that they might be able to accomplish some sort of change. Great. So I think we've got, what, a couple more minutes to go. Okay. So we'll stop right there, I think. And uh, so I... I know it's probably it's probably been hard to follow this this show, but I think it's really important that these transcripts are read and they're read in public. And uh, we're going to do the same thing uh, next on our next show. We'll finish. Hopefully, we'll finish this transcript and move on to the next. Uh, but I want to thank you uh, for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Abenaki Windows. I want to thank attorney Joe Gauss for being on the show. Uh, and the music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from CD uh, Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart, WMPG, and John Mann, WERU. -E -E Tune in again next month for another Abenaki Windows. <laughs>